Welcome to Climate Insiders, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the climate revolution. My name is Johan Berno, and I'm on a mission to shake things up. It is time we get serious and address this climate crisis. In each episode, I'll provide a platform for top climate thinkers, entrepreneurs, and investors to share their insights, innovations, and contrarian views. Let's learn from visionary thought leaders and hear their ideas that can profoundly reshape society and bring us one step closer to a sustainable world. I'm so excited about today's show because this time we are turning tables. I will not be conducting the interview. Instead, I will be interviewed. By popular demand, you will hear a little bit more about me and my thoughts on some awesome climate tech topics, such as risk management, ways to become an angel investor with as little as $1,000. What are the alternative forms of growth? Why technology won't solve this deeper crisis faced by humanity? The critical need to better communicate visions and the power of women to transform society. In addition, we will discuss my decision to leave Climentum Capital, my evolving role to help democratize climate tech investing and how you can get involved. Annalisa Winter, a veteran podcaster and a great climate ecosystem builder, will be conducting the interview. She will be asking me tough questions and extract a lot of valuable insights. This has been one of the most engaging conversations I've had on this show, and I'm sure you will find it very inspiring and derive a lot of insight from it. Let's go. Welcome back, guys. I'm very excited to be interviewed <laughs> to switch sides by Annalisa Winter. Thanks so much, Annalisa, for doing this. And I would love you to present yourself. I had you on the show already, but please introduce yourself and then you take the lead from there. Thank you. And I'm so honored to have the chance to be turning the tables on you today and diving more into your background and everything you do and how you got into the world of climate tech investing. My background is also in climate tech investing. So I've been in this space for 12 years, ever since I started my career. My particular focus is on the agri-food space, and I know that you've talked a little bit about that, but in my opinion, it has yet to explode compared to energy and logistics. It's a very exciting mm -hmm. area. I've spent my whole career approaching investing from the side of corporate venture capitalism and corporate innovation. So I've worked with some big name clients like IKEA, Pau League, Telia, Danske Bank, seeing how can we connect them to the ecosystem and basically enable them to invest so that they build up a strong innovation pipeline and also make sure that they're able to invest in the ideas that are going to create a better future. As a consequence of this, and as you know, on any investment deal, there's always two sides. You have the investor and then you have the startup and the founding team. And in my experience of doing matchmaking, many times when that relationship breaks down, it's because the investor in the startup isn't aligned in their vision or their values. So as a consequence of this, I started coaching founders to get them really clear on what is their vision for the future, what are their values for how they want to get there, and then how do we really crystallize their pitch so that they attract aligned investors that are going to help them and be the wind on their backs to build the company of their dreams. As I mentioned, I'm really deep in the agri-food space. I host a popular podcast called Future Food with Annalisa Winther. And because I'm, I'd say, pretty well known in the ecosystem, I do get a lot of requests for individual coaching too, where people say, hey, I want to get into a career within impact and agri-food. How do I do that? I think similar to how many people approach you. And mm -hmm. I started doing one-on-one -on -one coaching. So I'll also help in a similar process. Individuals get super clear on 
What is my vision for my future? What's my dream job? How am I going to make it a reality based on my superpowers and what I really want to do? And then we actually create a plan to get them there. So that's a little bit about who I am. How exciting. Yeah, thank you. And I'd love now to hear your story. So I know you do climate tech investing and we know you run this podcast, but how did you actually get into the space? What was your journey into climate tech? Oh, wow. So uh, first of all, thank you very much for your intro. It's great that we have ecosystem players like you and uh, we need so much more. So I'm glad that you're running your podcast and there will be a lot more podcasts in the future. How did I find myself to, to get into climate tech? I think I'm a pure product of tech. Let's just face it. I did engineering studies. I studied my career as a software engineer. I worked in Silicon Valley for many years. I've been conditioned to think hyperscalability and solving big problems. And so obviously climate is the biggest problem of this era. You know, if we were born in the Middle Ages, we would have talked about something else, but we are here in a, you know, in this century and we need all the money, all the attention, the resources, the energy to solve this crisis. And I've started companies before, we can speak about this, uh, and I decided to become an allocator to allocate capital into a, a, a number of startups. And I really love this job. I mean, it's just the best job in the world to work with entrepreneurs solving some of the biggest problems. Mm-hmm. And climate tech was not always called climate tech. It was clean tech, green tech, you know, you name it. Um, so it is climate tech today. Uh, and I play different roles through inspiration with this kind of content, but also investment with the fun uh, or trying to build communities. So we can speak about all that. That's passion that led me here. Yeah. And I know you spent a lot of time working as an operator, meaning your background was being a startup founder. And then you moved into the space of being an allocator, actually investing in the companies. I followed a similar journey too. I've dabbled in the startup space before really realizing that's where I wanted to make my home. So what made you realize that actually you wanted to do investing and how did you then transition into that? Yeah. You know, it's funny, when I was working for a startup in Silicon Valley, we were almost looking at VCs like the gods. I mean, let's just face it. They have capital, they call the shots, they make you scale. And, you know, you look at Andresen Orvitz, Sequoia, Union Square Ventures as almost the gods of Silicon Valley. So I always kind of looked up to those guys and they have a level of intelligence. I mean, some of the partners of those funds are really visionaries. Uh, So I always had an admiration. And... I guess in the back of my mind, when I thought about starting my own businesses, that was kind of a natural evolution for me. I never anticipated that to be so soon, you know, to switch from entrepreneur to investor. Uh, It's just uh, after a while, I felt like I had, you know, gathered enough knowledge and, and resources to become one of them. And there's just a lot of needs to transfer that knowledge mindset to Europe. So I'm, I'm glad I got the opportunity. And I really think that I am better. Uh, I always say that I'm a better allocator than an operator because it takes a number of skill set. It takes uh, to look at things in a transverse view. You know, you need to be multifaceted, very multi-skilled, generalist. Uh, and also you need to, it's, it's hard to put it this way, but I, I, if you get bored quickly, <laughs> if there's one problem set that you cannot bang your head against for too many years, it is probably better to become a allocator. Because then you can just jump from one topic to another and then help a lot of different, you know, solve a lot of problems. Yeah. And I'll also say that 
having the background you have of actually being able to empathize with founders is likely very useful because you know what they're going through and not all investors have that background. So in terms of really being their support system and being with them on the journey, it does, I think, help that you came from that space. But when you were a founder, before you went to work in the VC world, were you doing angel investing with your own personal wealth as an individual or did that come later? So I did. I I started getting into, you know, dipping my toes in angel investing, even from Silicon Valley, small amounts. You know, I was not, I don't come from money. Uh, This is uh, the things that I was able to save to, you know, fuel back into the ecosystem. And it's really since I'm back in Europe that I'm playing with a bit more money. Um, But it was always the the goal. I think this is the beauty of entrepreneurship. There's a lot of wrong with it, but one is that entrepreneurs that succeed really want to help other entrepreneurs through Mm -hmm. money, through expertise, through energy. And so I like what we've seen in the big tech hubs like Silicon Valley, New York, Boston. We're seeing that now in London, Paris, different cities is successful entrepreneurs, you know, with enormous exits, uh, reinvesting this money into the ecosystem. And I, I wished a lot more would do it. It's just already better than in on trading floors or investment banking or different verticals. Totally. And that pay it forward mentality, it's mm-hmm. been proven that that's what builds strong innovation ecosystems. So no matter where you are, if you want to encourage that in your city or where you live, it is about paying it forward, investing in others. But you mentioned a little bit the barriers of getting into angel investing versus what it looks like for funds. And there is this notion that you need to have a lot of money to do an angel investing. Yeah. And you busted that myth that it's not true. That's part of what you talk about. So can you tell us a little bit about the difference of what it takes to be a fund manager, get into that space versus what it looks like to actually be an angel investor? Yeah. So the, the angel investment space has evolved considerably, you know, when I got started in the space, you needed to be, especially in the U S an accredited investor, which means that you need a million dollar in net worth, uh, excluding your primary home. That's a lot of money. So you're essentially a millionaire. Or you need to earn, I, I believe, $300,000 a year, three years in a row. That's that's just an insane barrier, and it's nonsense. This is the SEC and the regulators to protect the taxpayer from burning their own capital. Uh, but what they don't know is that venture capital, it is uh, by far the highest performing asset class of the last 30 years. So by preventing access to you know the broad public, we're preventing them to invest in innovation, something that can transform the world, vastly improve our society and also outperform real estate, stocks, bonds, and other asset classes. So I think it's vastly unfair. And today you have platforms like WeFunder, Cedars, CrowdCube, Angelist, you know, all those platforms that enable access to for smaller angel investors that don't need to put 50K, $100,000 or euros into a deal. You can do it as low as 1,000. And this is what I'm trying to educate masses is that you can make money while saving the planet, you know, by solving some of our biggest problems. And by the way, you don't need to be a millionaire to do it. You actually can allocate $1,000. And imagine like the barrier is considerably lower, you know, when you think that way. Yeah. And I believe you've announced it on your channels, but let's announce it here for your podcast listeners who may or may not have heard that you have recently made a leap. Can you talk a little bit about what that leap is? Sure. I After launching Climentum Capital, which is the fund we launched in July 2022, I this is not an easy decision. I decided to actually step down as a partner and, and founder of 
of this fund, uh, seeing the general climate tech ecosystem evolving fast, you know, and it needs to evolve even faster. We need to lower barriers. We need to make sure that a lot more people outside of VCs get involved. And we're talking about an army here, not just a couple of hundreds, you know, thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of people need to get involved. And so I'm a builder at heart. I started companies. I started a fund. Uh, I, I want to start a community or help build communities and do a lot more together. So I feel like I'm at that stage of my life where I, I just want to give back and also help build things and create network effect in, in this community. So uh, to summarize, essentially what I'm, my role will be in this ecosystem, I want to inspire, continue spreading and diffusing ideas, messages, you know, debunking preconceived notions. I want to spread insights. So that's inspiration. Then I want to train people to get to know this space a bit better, but also allocate their money, uh, learn how to do it. And then to put it all in practice, join a community that can handhold them and give them opportunities of a lifetime to invest in the space. Mm. And how are you actually doing all those things? Time-wise or energy-wise? <laughs> I mean, if someone is listening to this and thinking, hell yeah, I want to get in on that. I want to be a part of this. I want to join that community. I want to learn. I, I've been dying to be an angel investor. I just haven't had the chance or I haven't had the person to help walk me through it. What is it yeah. that you're actually enabling people to do so that they can start putting money and helping the space to grow and voting for a better world? Yeah. So I've been doing this for years. So obviously sometimes you get biased and think, uh, things are overly simple. So I'm trying to rewind back and think like a, like a, like a newbie, right? You know, starter, you need to grow into an angel investor. You need to understand that there's a carrot and the carrot is pretty attractive. It's a very lucrative game. If you do it well, of course, there's risk involved, but you need to understand, you know, the ins and outs of this game. You need to understand how to source companies and how to understand who are the best entrepreneurs and best ideas. So there's a assessment and judgment to develop, but also is just getting access and getting access through communities, through SPVs, uh, you know, special purpose vehicles uh, and, and groups, et cetera, et cetera. So all this, I'm giving all the learnings through a course. I run an online course. You can probably find this in, in the notes or... Uh, I will be a lot more communicative about this in the in the coming weeks. Uh, and also, I'm building a community myself. I'm trying to gather the people that go through the course into a community of investors and put meat on the table, you know, put really great deals that I've pre-filtered, that I've run a hard due diligence on. And I'm trying to have everyone be able to invest a very small commitment so that they can dip their toes and feel that the excitement it almost becomes an addiction. You know, a lot of people that start Android mm -hmm. investing just want to do more because they are getting yeah. closer to the entrepreneurs. They get fueled with this energy. And wow, it's not like, uh, you know, cutting down on meat or uh, stopping, you know, not, not taking a flight. This is real. It's as tangible as it gets and you can really solve big, big problems. And I took the course. It's called Invest Like a Climate Tech VC. And even though I've been in this space for over a decade and I've made multiple angel investments myself up to 5,000 euro tickets, I thought it was super helpful Congrats. because you really, <laughs> why thank you. Um, but you really do lay out the basics and democratize it so that when people can understand all the jargon in this space, because it can feel like the barriers to entry are very high, as you mentioned a little bit before. Mm -hmm. But then you also talk through a great framework for, okay, 
when you get a deal in your lap, this is how you can evaluate it and think about it to know if it's worth it. As you mentioned, there are many times where you just love the founding team and kind of throw the framework to the wind because you just want to invest in the people and help them. And that's something that's fun for you. But you also mentioned that, you know, here's how you can get deal flow. This is how you practically go about it. And it's a great beginner's crash course in what you need. And then you feed them into the community where they can continue to try or just make their first investment, which I think is a really good way to take that first step. That's right. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for the the, the kind words. I really try uh, to get away from jargon and complexity. This is also a learning, I guess, from the uh, top dogs in Silicon Valley or those really great company creators. They think from first principles, really, I, I guess the best way to describe it is how to break that things down, you know, complex things into very first simple principles. And I lay out three golden rules of investing. This, those are the simplest rules. Of course, there's a lot more and it can get, you know, uh, there's, there's also when, when investors look at a deal, they probably made their mind in just a couple of minutes. And then it's all about confirmation bias is how do you mm -hmm. make sure that you gather enough information to confirm whether your first intuition and your judgment was right or not. And most of the guys, 90% of the cases, you're always going to follow your gut instinct from the first five minutes. And those boil down to three golden rules. And this is what I described in the course. Yeah. And I think that's important for the entrepreneurs listening to this to know that sometimes you can feel like you're banging your head against the wall because you're like, why don't they like me? But it is how you first present yourself. It is all about that first impression, which is why it's so important that you're that's confident right. and clear on who you are and how you show up and all that stuff. Because there's a lot of feeling that goes into investing. It isn't all logic, even though we sometimes like to think that it is. That's right. I actually want to bounce back on this. This is another preconceived notion that it's a lot, a lot more analytical than it is. BC. Mm -hmm. And this is probably historically because of the private equity, the banking, investment banking game, or the kind of people. And we can get to it. While the, you know, the, the bridges between professions have probably tainted the whole VC space. But I really think that you as a, a fund manager need to be a psychologist. You need mm -hmm. to understand psychology. You need to yeah. get under the skin of the founders, understand their mindset, understand their motivations. Why are they doing it? Uh, do they have the, the grit that it takes to to continue and persevere for a decade, 20 years, who knows? And for that is just a small little details. You know, the way they look at each other in the room, the way they talk about a topic, the passion, the vision, the, the obsession, how detailed are they? Do they mind banging their head against the wall, you know, too, too many times? Do they mind the roller coaster? Uh, and this is sort of... Um, Abstract notions. This is what you know accumulates as judgment is psychology, understanding this motivation, and this uh, this is where I think as a fund manager to have been an entrepreneur before, so you've been on the other side, you've pitched, you understand what they're going through, and you can understand that language better than anyone else. So you oh, become yeah. a better psychologist. <laughs> And, you know, we always think investing, you know, there's financial due diligence, legal due diligence. I describe what you just mentioned as personal due diligence, meaning what do you really think of the founding team? Because when companies are so early stage and we're talking about angel investing, it is very risky. And I want to talk a little bit more about the risk actually involved, which big returns, but also big risk. But because of that, you are mainly investing in the people. So you need to do work to figure out if you really believe in this team because it takes, on average, seven to 10 years to build a company. There is no such thing as an overnight success. So that's, right. that's also what I work with many of my clients on is, you know, how do we actually ask those questions to figure it out and figure out if we agree with them? But Absolutely. talking about 
risk because this is a big, I think, topic to mention upon also. So realize people realize what they're getting into when they put their money into this. Can you talk about how you look at risk, how you explain risk and therefore the upside? And let's just go through that. Yeah, I'm glad that you're bringing this up. So uh, risk capital or venture capital, it is all about risk, but it is not risk management. (laughs) That's right. It is risk maximization. So there are very few people in Europe, and I really feel a mindset, you know, difference or divergence between the US, for example, Europe. Uh, that's the two continents I have more most experience in. I couldn't speak for the Chinese or Japanese on that on that matter, but very much a difference in Europe. Because what what it means is that you need to take all the risk to profoundly change the system and or alter a broken system. And if you succeed, the returns will be incommensurable. You know, history in the broad startup ecosystem will only remember the ones that have taken those risks and succeeded, not the 110 Lambda VC fund or startup that operated conservatively and barely returned 3x to their LPs. I, I, I'm, um, you know, very radical in that matter, but this is who I learned from. You know, you need to maximize the risk if you're right. Jackpot. Jackpot for you as a fund, jackpot for the entrepreneurs, jackpot for everyone in getting involved, and jackpot for humanity. And of course, technology is not is neutral, is not positive by by default. But when we speak about climate tech investing, we make sure in the due diligence that we only invest in positive uh, startups. You know, they can positively impact the world. So if they're right, that is, you know, and it scales and it scales at global scale. It can really transform society. Yeah. Oh, there's two juicy things I want to dive into from here. One is the idea that you're going to fail a lot when you're angel investing, as in you're going to place bets that they're going to go nowhere. And Mm -hmm. going back to that psychology of being a founder and knowing that you're playing a long game, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You're going to fall down many times. The experience can be really similar angel investing that you're not going to have a win every time you place a chip. So can you talk a little bit about that psychology? And then I want to dive into talking about climate tech and that kind of idea of what solutions do we really Uh invest in? But first, let's talk about the real experience of what it takes to be an investor. I think you probably remember those days when you were playing with your parents at Monopoly, you know, <laughs> those kind of money games. That's the first exposure you get to money. And then you can quickly tell whether the risk appetite is, is high or not. You know, mm. I think uh, board games are really a great proxy for how you're going to perform as an angel investor. Uh, or uh, whether you're willing to take enormous risk in your life, right? You move continents, you move from your parents early, this kind of stuff. So your upbringing is the, you know, already kind of defining you. So you will fail a lot as an angel investor, for sure, the same way you will fail a lot as an entrepreneur, the way you will fail a lot at anything if you want to become a superstar in Hollywood, et cetera, et cetera, or a musician. It is what I, you know, the, the 80-20 rule, uh, or I even extrapolate that to the, the the power law that rules the world. There's a handful of iterations that just outperform everything else. And so I, this is one of the golden rules. And I go over it, you know, over and over. I'm trying to bang this in the head of most people. Because if you start as angel investing the same way that you would uh, sort of protect your assets like a, a real estate agent, you just, you will fail. It's not how it works. So you, you need to make sure that you consider every investment in isolation and then one will return uh, the, your entire portfolio and you don't know which one. It's unpredictable. 
mm-hmm. um, even though you have certain early signals. So I really advise everyone to look at angel investing as risk taking, understanding that a lot of it will go bust. It is part of the process. And I use uh, real life, you know, examples to illustrate how this actually is true in most you know, most area. And do you find a lot of people taking your course are getting into it because they want to make, get the money or is it because they want to make a difference or is it both? Because I, at least when I think of my own experience, I haven't typically invested because I thought I was going to make a lot of money. I knew it was risky. I knew I might never see that money again. So I was willing to put some money in where if it doesn't come back, it's okay. It's money I could play with. Fine with me. But I gained a lot of other things in the process, like learning about different industries and different companies, building great relationships with founders, being able to actually help someone, being part of building a company without actually building the company. So, you know, I think it's important to think of value in different perspectives, but I'm curious for the people you see coming into the course, what what is their profile? Like, who's it really for? Yeah. Well, so the, if you bear with me for a minute, I want to develop, you know, this point, but uh, to answer a short answer to it, um, there's a, a lot of the people d- do this for the values. They want to align their money with their values. It's real period. That's it. They understand that real estate won't get them there. I mean, it's not buying an apartment in your city that will just uh, help solve the, this problem. Uh, the it, it is not buying yeah. stocks or bonds or, you know, gold medals or, you know, this kind of stuff. Or, or letting your, for in most cases, most people just keep your, their, their, their cash under the mattress or sitting in a checking account, not doing anything. So they want to become active. And uh, not everyone has the luxury to quit their jobs, allocate their entire energy and career to it because they're making good money. They need financial freedom. They need to support their families. But they're using their capital as one way to get considerably more active to solving the planet. And so that's a vast majority of them. Are they in it to make money? Are they understand and the math are proving it that this is a very lucrative game, but you need to do it well. And so I'm really trying people that are, you know, joining uh, as a three or four out of 10, uh, turn them into a seven or eight, you know, after two days. Uh, and of course, the rest is practice. You need to apply this. There's a mental psychology when you're about to hit, you know, that wire button to a deal. Um, you might do this too quick, uh, but the same way you would for stocks or crypto investment, this kind of things. So I'm really trying to elevate them to eight so they can do decent assessments. Now, if I can elaborate a little bit more on this, why it is so important beyond the game of you know money and, and uh, values, I really think, and I'm try- gonna try not to go too far with this, but uh, VC is a game of priced valuation, not cash flow prediction. And most people get it wrong, meaning that we're not investment bankers or private equity guys trying to assess whether the company, uh, what gets priced in into the valuation of a company are a bunch of intangibles like the brand, the reputation, the vision, um, and much of it, uh, you know, can bend, it can bend humanity's dreams, aspirations, arises. For example, you know, let's take trite examples like SpaceX, what it did for us as humanity is that it made everything science fiction possible. I mean, when you saw the reusable landing rockets just landing, you know, in parallel, I was, everyone was blown away, like beyond people in tech. Or when you see ChatGPT, you know, recently blowing everyone's minds because it just, it, it, it's just unbelievable what you can do with this or mid-journey with generative AI art. Um, so the, 
the companies and those valuations almost don't matter. Uh, people will pay the price no matter what to be part of their story. And so the biggest driving force of VC, of tech, of angel investing, it is uh, the legacy, is uh, leaving a, a, a mark forever. And the bigger the narrative, uh, the bigger the shift, the bigger the momentum, the bigger the valuation. And so a lot of people just want to be part of this because they, they're putting themselves as part of this narrative. They're you know, bending humanity's history with it. And even though it's a small, very small angel ticket, you still feel part of that, you know, humanity journey. It's unbelievable. Oh, this brings up such a big topic for me. I started the beginning of my career working for Singularity University, which when you talk about the power law was like what introduced the power law and in some ways made it very mainstream, talking about exponential technologies and the exponential curve and how that ends up changing humanity in many ways, and also that it follows a very similar pattern. And one thing that I realized in doing this work is that that emotion you just described of wanting to be a part of something, sometimes it leads to the FOMO that we see in the industry, the fear of missing out or the hype cycle where everyone jumps in. And then, I don't know, it's a little bit like crazy investing and you can feel like I have to do it and people lose a lot of money in that moment. But what it brings up on a deeper level for me is really the ethics of doing this and always going back to your why. Why are you making this bet? How are you going to help? What is it going to do to the world? And how do you make sure that it's having a positive impact or a negative one? And when I went through your course, I was really struck when you talked about how in many ways, climate tech investing is broken. When we talk about building a strong vision for the future and a different kind of world, that financial vehicle that we've seen isn't necessarily the one that is going to serve us best in the future. So oh, wow. I'd like to dive yes. a little bit into <laughs> that because it's a big reason why it's powerful that individuals are coming in and having a lot more leeway and bandwidth to do things the way that they want to because they're not bound by the VC structure. So I'm going to turn it over to you to let you riff and then we can dive deeper. But why yeah. is climate tech investing a little bit broken today? All right. So thanks for the plug. This is also partly why I felt like I had to pull out, you know, or step back from a fund so I could freely express myself and diffuse ideas that unfortunately, when you have LPs or vested interest, you know, in the fund, it's very difficult to, to communicate and really ideas that, that might hinder uh, or alter this relationship. So now that I can freely speak and I really intend to keep my freedom in the future so I can do that more. So climate tech is not broken. I think the VC world is broken to a certain extent, right? So the problem is we're betting on a system that realizes completely, that is completely addicted to uh, perpetual economic growth. When you buy into a company, you of course invest in it because you expect linear or exponential growth, right? And so everyone is betting on this assumption that he needs to grow forever. But this is very extractive. It's very damaging for the, the you know, for, for, for our environment uh, and for humanity. Uh, we, it, it, it turns out that the damage that we're doing to externalities, to external factors, are also damaging us internally. We see the highest raise in depression and anxiety and it, the, uh, the, the lack of new generations are completely lost. The sentiment of uh, importance, all those things are vanishing away. And so I am a technologist, I think deep at heart, I re I've seen technology solving problems. I started my first company in Africa where we placed a solar panel in a village and that was the first time in their entire life that they had electricity. So lighting after 5 p.m. because Kenya is on the equator 
And so that means that after 5 p.m., just the sun sets every day of the year. When you put a light there, which is only powered by technology, it transforms their lives. You know, the kids can study, they can play board games, they can hang out with their parents, uh, the parents can cook longer, and it, it transforms their lives. Uh, but technology cannot solve the, all the problems. And I came to this realization over the last couple of months is we need to bend the narrative and try to involve a lot of other factors. Um, the you know transferring this perpetual economic growth into perpetual green growth will not solve the problem. It will just it, it will it just comes on top of all the energy that we're using. It will not solve the broken relationships that we have with each other, that we have with nature. The fact that nature and humanity is just not two; it is one. We're all interlinked, and we sit in so many ways. We eat from nature. We breathe the air. Uh, the air is just recycled by the forest. Everything is interlinked in every shape or form as, as, you, as you look at it. We're finding out every day there's more interconnections with nature than we thought there were. So the, the more we extract resources and kill nature, the more we're killing ourselves slowly. And so I have actually written a manifesto that I will publish soon on why I think this perpetual economic growth has turned into autoimmune disease. This idea that we were addicted to this and it helped us, you know, getting lifting people out of poverty and developing our you know, comfort level, but it has turned into a disease that is eating us alive. And un until we realize this is a collective that we need to shift away from it and take the risk, it will take risk, and to bend the system, not to break it, because we've seen in terrible, you know, situation in. In, in, in so many places now, Venezuela, you, in Liban, Lebanon, right? Or in Ukraine, Russia, that once you, you break the system, it just creates chaos. So we need to bend the system and create a new narrative, a narrative that puts communities, interconnections between humans and nature, a circular living, co-living, and also different form of growth, such as uh, spiritual growth, emotional growth, knowledge growth, personal development growth and not economic growth at the center of our collective narrative. And we're yeah. only at the start of it. And that involves everybody. And again, this is not technology that will help us make that shift. And I think that leads back into a little bit how angel investing is a journey of personal growth because you have to form your own philosophy of what part of the narrative you want to bend, what future you want to create, what your vision for the future is. I've also been to Kenya and it was my first time going to Africa and when I experienced the sun setting when I was there, it was like 6 p.m. every day up at 6 a.m. Uh -huh. I was like, this is amazing because my body immediately adjusted to a natural clock that I couldn't artificially <laughs> stay up late because I had light. So I felt so much more in connection to nature and my body and others because we'd sit around a campfire. And, you know, it was a very different way of moving through the world. So I could That's argue true. back, depending on my investment philosophy, if actually creating light all night long is something that helps or hurts us. You know, is that driving more economic growth because we can work 24 hours a day and the world I want to see, or actually do I want to invest in a different narrative? So I, I want to highlight that because it is important that you define your own way of thinking about these things and kind of move away from the hype and what you're told, because it mm -hmm. is a personal decision of what you want to vote for, what you want to support with your dollars. And every time we buy something or do something with our money, we are voting for a certain kind of future. Absolutely. You know yeah. what got me uh, really connected to nature in, in Africa is the fact that you're close to animals that don't exist anymore mm -hmm. in the West. I mean, when you're close to giraffes or elephants, they're literally in your backyard in, in Nairobi, in Kenya. 
It's the only uh, city in the world that has a national park within the city boundaries. Um, it's insane. And, and so when you see this, you're like, holy crap, humanity used to be surrounded by nature, by animals. And, and now we're, we've parked them in zoos or in, and you go for safaris. I just completely nuts. So we need to definitely re, regenerate. And I want to add one point to it is when we say we, often as, as a collective, we refer to the Western you know, mindset or the dominant system, which has imposed itself over the last centuries, you know, after colonization, and we've eliminated all sorts of tribal or community thinking. Um, but it used to exist. You know, you had communities in Latin America, in Africa, everywhere, really, or even in Europe that used to exist, but they've just been wiped out. Somehow we need to backpedal and let those new thing, communities and alternative systems uh, come to life and let them prosper. And I really think that this will just diffuse new narratives. I agree. And again, it goes back to that risk factor, because when you get pitched an idea that's never been done before, you don't have a reference for it. You just don't know what to make of it. That's inherently risky to say, we have no idea if this is going to work. We're going to say, let's give it a shot. And it also leads into the consequences that as you learn more, constantly going back to that question of what is the consequence of this technology? I mean, we all read the headlines in the paper of saying how technology has brought us further apart Mm -hmm. from each other, further apart from nature. And a lot of the people working in the impact investing space are looking at still, how do I invest in technology to get a great return? And I do think we should talk about what that actually looks like, but it's not just for the great return. It's also asking yourself these questions in your own personal investment thesis does this place tech or does this place nature in the center? Is this in support of nature? Can we build a city that has a national park in the center of it and supports that life and supports the whole ecosystem? Or are we building a city that's just a concrete jungle? You know, it's mm-hmm. a totally different way of thinking. How do you build a system Absolutely. in support of life? And that's something you have to drill into yourself because it takes so much effort to break out of the way we've all been raised, which is supporting economic growth, doing things that will feed into that. It's really hard to shift. And it's also why I think community is important because you need to be challenged all the time in your assumptions being like, what is that really about? Yeah, yeah. And uh, also a, a lot of times I get asked, uh, what a minute, so you're promoting a new ideas of alternative growth, but you're still a venture capital investor, right? So you are, um, you, you are um, investing in companies and you're expecting a return and stuff like that. But it will happen in stages. It cannot happen, you know, overnight, uh, developing new tribal thinking, get close to nature, and we all live like this. So it will be, you know, gradual. And in the first stage, we need a hook, which functions very well which is a capitalistic hook. The fact that you migrate a ton of money and you invest in stuff in a model that really has proven itself. And eventually phase two will be, okay, now, can we promote new forms of you know, ownership structures like steward ownership or pur- purpose foundations or investing in new business models that don't exist? And then gradually you, you migrate towards you know, new community building, and et cetera, et cetera. I really think that this narrative will keep us busy for decades. Uh, it just yeah. needs to start somewhere. Oh, there's so many important things in what you just said. So first is that many investors historically are investing in, because of the yeah life horizon of a fund, many investors look for technologies that can return the whole fund within the timeline that they've set out. And that's how it works. So it also automatically biases what you're looking for and what you believe can happen. When you're an individual, you might have a much longer horizon. You might have more patient capital it allows you to then invest in the things that can't get funded today. And the things that need to get funded in climate tech, in my space, in agri-food tech are 
really deep root causes. We're talking infrastructure. Food is like hardware and that it's highly cultural. It's political. It's social. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on there that you can't expect to make a quick buck. You're in it for a long game. And I really liked in your course too, how you talked about that and how we need to invest deeper. We can't stay on the surface level. It can't all be about software and automatic and it's getting off that train. So can you talk a little bit more about the, 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 the thesis in terms of the the biggest um, challenges are the biggest opportunities and why it's worth investing in that space. Yeah. So there's clear battle software versus hardware. Historically, at least over the last 20 years, VC has made its big bucks and big exits on software-led companies. Why? Because there is intrinsic network effect and scalability to it, and it's a lot easier to scale. But today, when we talk about climate, this is a hardware problem. It's a physical, it's molecules, and we need to move things around. So clearly, we need to involve in stuff that is taking CO2 out of the air. And I, again, um, photovoltaic, wind energy, I've already proven themselves, this is no longer VC territory, where we need to invest in moonshot. Moonshot has a bad reputation, but the idea is you, if you're right, it transforms humanity. And I really want to, you know, push and propel and invite all my collaborators to think the same way. Let's take risk where if we're wrong, it's okay. It's just a write-off. It won't matter because we have a portfolio and we've diversified our investment. But if mm-hmm. we're right and you invest in a technology that were not thought possible, then the money will pile in. It will just be an incredible influx of capital. Governments will want to seize it. They will want to promote it. So that's the case of uh, nuclear fusion, for example. It's considered that the holy grail of energy because if you're right and we crack this in the next decade, well, it renders almost energy free and unlimited. You know, um, And what that, that means is you can do direct air capture. You can do all sorts of, you can do uh, precision farming at scale. You can do uh, biochar production. Anything that is very energy cost sensitive vanishes. And it can also have the opposite effect Obviously, to have energy unlimited, that means that the polluters will try to pollute and will continue polluting more. But I really hope that it will, you know, put a lot of, you know, power on that positive curve. So taking risk and, you know, investing in crazy ideas, uh, that that's really my motto. Yeah. And I, I really liked what you said before that the idea that's crazy doesn't just have to be the technology. It can also be the organizational structure and the way that that looks of a great idea of how you want to scale what the future kind of company looks like. And similarly, when we're investing, we want to think hand in hand. It's not just about the tech. It's also about the people. And, you know, it's ESG. It's also about the society and the governments and the environment. And how do we think of all the stakeholders involved in what it means to actually run a company that we're not just focused on the tech and what that can do that we unleash it and there's no like sensibility of how we steward it. It's just, that's the big focus. And I think shifting that is something I, I also really enjoyed in your course. that was refreshing to hear um, because it is not just about the tech. Absolutely. Fully agree. Yeah. Uh, you also covered this a bit that when we, as an investor, you know, there's also this question of, well, okay, I hear what you're saying, Annalisa Nyon, and like, how do I actually know if it's a good impact investment? How can I check? How can I run my own due diligence? I'm investing $1,000. You know, it's not that much money. Mm-hmm. I don't have more to spend on this stuff. So what would you suggest for someone that wants to get in this space, but doesn't exactly know how to evaluate or run the due diligence required to actually tell if this can make a good difference in the world? Um, so, so here, 
there's just a, a short answer and a longer answer. The short answer is if you invest early stage, and we're talking about pre-seed or seed, you know, or even early Series A in a climate tech space, we're lacking a whole lot of data. There's not, and especially for first of a kind factories, new ideas, you're just investing in something that has not been done before. So you need to take risk, but also you cannot really assess this risk. And oftentimes, if you contact, which we try to do, you know, as funds in due diligences, you contact the experts at corporates, you know, CVCs, or even in enormous uh, conglomerates, and what they will tell you are, oh, this is impossible. We've tried this. Uh, it is not cost effective. There's no, you know, but they're telling you, obviously, because they are corporates. <laughs> they're not drivers of innovation. They will not take everything it takes and you know, put all the, you know, the, the, take all the risk to make it possible. So the individual, the entrepreneur that cracks it open just unleashes a blue ocean. And this is why we're so fascinated by this. Uh, I'm going to take just one example in, in hydrogen, in hydrogen space. This is an exciting space, you know, for a lot of countries, particularly in, in Europe, um, and especially hydrogen for airplanes. So it happens that Airbus, which there's a duopoly, Boeing and Airbus are basically, you know, splitting the apple in half in the airline industry. And the CTO of Airbus frustrated to not see anything progressing internally, moving the hydrogen up in the agenda, decided to spin off its own business, which became Universal Hydrogen, which is now located in Los Angeles. And he has assembled a rock, you know, a stellar team around him. And now just announced that they will they might be able to crack a regional airline that is hydrogen uh, powered in the next four years. And so and now Airbus is like, oh, um, well, <laughs> maybe it was possible. So it and it will happen over and over and over, over. There's a reason why entrepreneurs that have crazy ideas and crazy you know, risk taking will crack this open before the corporates will. Yeah, I think your example with Boeing is really interesting because one thing I think misunderstood in this space is the role of which kind of investors, like you, we talk a little bit about the angel versus private equity versus VC and who has what role to play. So what I see with corporates is, yeah, they're very good at killing ideas early on, but where they are amazing is that once an idea is taking off and it has that momentum, they can scale it and spread it. So it's where they come in in the journey. And even when I work with startup founders who are thinking of, should I take on a corporate venture capital arm? Does that make sense? It might not be a right now they can help you on your journey, but also corporates move very slow. So it takes time to set up the partnership of what it should be. But when that tanker decides to move, it is going full speed ahead and it can really make things happen. So I look at it more from the perspective of really scaling that infrastructure and tapping into the existing infrastructure we have rather than a startup building it all from scratch, because that also takes an enormous amount of monetary investment. You're right that uh, some of those early stage entrepreneurs get seduced by big brands, you know, chemical giants or manufacturing giants that thinking that they will definitely unleash the Kraken and help them scale. But what they don't understand is the timeline involved. And it's, it's counted oh, yeah. in years because they budget for years ahead. And so, and you need to go up the hierarchy, talk to the right folks. Those folks will probably either get fired or leave the organization. So you will, you will be reset from scratch. All those, you know, is some, something that should be vetted and, and budgeted for over months turns into years. It's vastly underestimated. You make a huge good point there that ev anyone listening to this should 
write down in their notebook <laughs> because I always argue also when I work with the corporates advising them on how do we actually partner with startups successfully is you need in, one, one thing is making the investment. That's hurdle one. Just like when you're an angel investor, then it comes the actual helping of the company. And what do you do? What does your relationship look like? How do you continue to invest in them with your time and energy and other resources? So with that, you almost always need an internal key account manager who's lobbying for you and like running through the organization champion, to make yeah. it go. Yeah. And championing it. And, you know, the same is true with your angel investor. You'll have a super promoter who just will not shut up about you and then create all the hype or help you enter a new market. There's so many things there of what it can look like. But if you don't have that internal advocate, then you can die on the vine 100% and it won't go anywhere. So yes, you need to... I actually suggest people negotiate that as part of the deal. Same if you're approaching a VC, you know, interview the VC and ask them, so what is it you're going to do for me? What doors can you open? Um, I liked in your course when you talked about if you want to expand to the U.S. market, can you get a VC who's your on-ramp and has those connections Mm -hmm. to connect you and bring on future investors you want? What is that? What is the relationship look like beyond just the money? Because it's really important Mm -hmm. in terms of how you actually grow the physical company and make sure that you go somewhere. And it's also underappreciated how important the set of, of VC investors that you have on your cap table, supporting you, breathing, you know, down your neck, but really fueling your, your vision, your brand, your, your, your attraction. And often case uh, VC in the US that is a strong stronghold, a moat, right? It brand uh, will be enable or will bring the trust factor so that everyone will want to pile in and join your business. But it, it will also force the, the corporates to kind of look at what a partnership would look like, you know, with a company like you. So bridging to bridge continents and let's face it in Europe, we have great entrepreneurs and uh, you know, it's a lot of subsidies to get off the ground. That's great. But to scale, we need the capital markets that is mostly available in the States. And I hope that changes. I really, you know, hold uh, this, you know, in one of my sweetest dreams is that eventually we will have IPOs and we have all those uh, money flowing around in the space so that European companies can remain in Europe. But today they need to get access to the capital markets in the States. And for that, you need the right partners. And that bridge typically is a VC. And a VC that either has an arm in Europe or you need also angel investors that make those connections. And this is where I personally specialize in, you know, to help make introductions. So what we're starting to see in the space is that more and more startups are including in their pitch deck the um, how much emissions, what are the impact they think they can have on the emissions and to lower it and lessen it. But there's also some issues with this. And I think you touched upon that as well that I think is important in terms of the data we currently have and how young this space still is, that it's a new paradigm for thinking about investing. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about why CO2 is a good starting point, but it's not the end point? Yes. So CO2 uh, turned into a proxy to assess whether that's uh, positive or negative uh, for the climate. And so if you include all greenhouse gases, it's CO2 equivalent, CO2E. That includes, uh, you know, uh, methane, uh, all sort of nitrogen, uh, you know, all all, all of the above, all of them that are really, uh, you know, greenhouse pollutants. There's a lack of data historical data on whether technology can solve it or, or not. And this is where we as a, a collective, as a community, have established life cycle analysis or LCE as a sort of de facto you know, uh, principle to assess whether if you include scope one, two, and three, it is carbon positive or negative. Uh, unfortunately, to run the LCA, 
you need a PhD. It's very complex. You need to assess in the value chain all the factors, the suppliers, the customers, everyone involved. And it's something that we do not have the capacity, even as a fund, even as a pretty sizable fund, to run beforehand because it costs a lot of money. You know, it can be, you know, and I've, I've done a podcast episode on this. We can look it in the show as, you know, we're talking five, 10 grand, 15 grand to run this kind of assessment to access the database and then do a proper, you know, assessment at the, you know, by expert level. So what we do is we do back of the envelope calculation. You try to, you know, 80, 20 rule, try to estimate whether that idea can really crack this and estimate what will be the impact over the next 10 years at full scale. If the technology scales up and only at the end of the fund or when you divest from this investment, can you operate and run a full LCA. So then you're kind of looking in hindsight what has been realized. Now, obviously, this is at the VC fund level. As an angel investor, you don't have those tools, you don't have the capacity, and you don't have the luxury to run those big, big LCAs. So I advise uh, angels, but also micro VC funds or early stage funds, pre-C and seed, to kind of offset that, offload this for the bigger guys in Series A, B, or even ideally private equity guys to conduct this uh, this ESG metrics LCA assessment. And it should be at growth stage and not early stage because it's it's hindering almost the growth of this space. I've been in the shoes and I've been in board, uh, you know, of, of certain startups that need to allocate cap, you know, resources very, very proactively and, and they need to be careful about every dollar. If they allocate someone full-time to do this kind of assessment and monitoring, this is someone that is not being allocated to the growth of the business. So I would argue that the uh, you know, early stage startups pre-series A should be entirely focused on product market fit, scaling their business, proving it possible, and not so much monitoring and reporting and let the big guys at growth stage kind of offer their help to, to enable that kind of scale. So just to yeah. kind of wrap things up, that means that as an early stage investor, the only assessment that you can do on the impact, whether it's positive or not, is again, gut, gut feeling, judgment. You gather intelligence, you try to Google it, you need to make sure that what has been reported looks kind of promising, and you leave off the rest of the assumption to the expert later on. Mm. And I also think it's important to note that in terms of reporting this data, there's a lot of development on what that framework or standard should look like, if there should even be a standard. But CO2 is even limited that there's additional natural resources involved with running a company, water being one of like, do we actually look at water and the impacts on that? So it's not just the, there is a lot of effort to collect the data and it's something many, 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 many people are working on to figure out how do we actually approach this and think of it. But it's just one measure and there is, um, it doesn't really make sense to just have one unit of measure for how we think about, Mm -hmm. is this going to help or hurt climate tech or you know, something that's going to make sense in the future, along with what you said that, yeah, as a young investor, you just can't necessarily fund all the research it'll take to figure that stuff out. There's so many factors that you need to consider as a early stage investor. Again, psychology, mindset, drive, and either a potential product market fit. Can this be scalable? Do they develop the right partnerships to scale this? So if on top of it, you need to nail the impact projections before and it's almost impossible. So I would say 80-20 rule, focus on what you can somewhat estimate and control. I will say, though, that yes, product market fit matters. But one thing I know from the food space is that, for example, supermarkets today have quotas in terms of what 
products they're taking onto their shelves. And they have different categories. Like I want it to be women or minority led. It needs to be circular. And if you as a startup are able to show that and have the data and the numbers and have baked it into your business model, mm-hmm. going back to what is your vision? What kind of company do you want to build? What investors do you attract? You might not have all the data to be 100% like able to report it and you know it's a work in progress, but you will get selected over incumbents because you actually have thought of that and you are the future from that perspective. So yes, you need to nail product market fit, but I wouldn't give up on incorporating in your business model and having every intention of getting there and being uncompromising in it. Yeah, fully agree. Yeah. And I noticed that in your course that you mentioned a lot, the idea of the social capital involved. So when you're putting together your investors, it's strategic. You can also think of that as a portfolio and each one serves a different purpose. It's part of your vision. And I speak with my clients a lot about that is like, what is your dream vision in terms of the different investors you have behind you? What role does each of them play? What does your relationship look like? Do you feel comfortable calling them on the phone? Are you like terrified to send that email? Good or bad news? You know, these are, these things are important going back to the emotions, but you mentioned the fact that the social proof, right? Like getting that investor with, there's VCs that have a brand name. That's like the equivalent of saying I went to Harvard. It, instantly gives you authority, accountability, trust. But there's also some big name or high net worth individuals where if you say you convince them to invest in you, then that also is a door opener. And I thought that was an important point you bring up. And also a goal you could have as an angel investor that you build out your own network, that you carry that weight and brand reputation of when you invest in something, other people want to follow and it's a big deal. And it means that this this is something that's worth looking at. And I keep hearing this from the top entrepreneurs, how involved and instrumental are the VCs at the cap table, you know, on the board or also, you know, investors that just want to help out because they will strategically help you, you know, make the right turns, but also open doors. And at the end of the day, it is just a game of opening doors. You just yeah. gate after gate after gate. You just only need to open gates and then the gate to, you know, scale to 50 employees and then another gate to raise your first 10 million round and then the gate to raise this 100 million series B round, et cetera, et cetera. And to clear those gates, because most entrepreneurs are first time entrepreneurs or they've never been there. They are for the first time clearing those gates. So you need to surround yourself by the advisors, by the investors, by the team that can help open those doors. So if we were going to demo this on you right now, then what is your pitch as an investor of why a startup should want you on their cap table or want the community of climate insiders behind them and choose you and pitch yeah. you? What is it that you tell them you can provide and how you show up as an angel? Yeah, so I, I realize over, over time how much communications is involved in this game. And we are all communicators, but... Technical founders are poor communicators, especially in Europe. We just need to market ourselves much better. And so what I'm trying to establish here is almost the media. The idea of having a podcast, a newsletter, some following on LinkedIn, this kind of stuff is to fuel, to diffuse ideas, but also, uh, you know, a, an audience that can, you know, as they, Kevin Kelly say, 1,000 true fans that can just kind of follow you and help your portfolio succeed and propel it forward. So... Uh, the value add here is helping better communicate. Sometimes when I get pitched by a founder, I, I'm like, I see the passion, I see the the differentiation, but they're not expressing it the right way. I think Hampus from Pale Blue Dot and I spoke about this, how reverse pitching is super powerful because oh, yeah. you almost, you know, unlock something in the mind of the entrepreneur. They're looking at you like, oh shit, yeah, I, I never thought about it this way. I've been pitching it wrong. And so communication 
uh, because you're just marketing yourself. You're just trying to establish a vision and establish trust with all the people that you're pitching to. And this is for investors, but it's also for regulators. It's also for the people that are trying to recruit and then to incentivize and et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. better communication, building an audience or uh, leveraging that audience to fuel those companies and diffuse important new concepts. Uh, and then bridging that gap. I think, again, the capital markets uh, in the U.S. is so much more powerful. It has so much more firepower than we do in Europe. So being that introducer, you know, leveraging connections and those trusted relationships. Um, when I send an email out to a top fund manager in the U.S., they typically respond and they're excited to see it, right? So they, they trust my judgment and what I stand for. So yeah. if you were to cold call on LinkedIn or via, you know, one of those uh, hunter.io emails that you read and cold email those people, you will get zero, 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 one percent response rate. So it makes a huge difference. The value of a warm introduction can't be underestimated, but there's also that follow on effect. So because of the work you've been doing to build community and that you have all these other I'll call them new angel investors or people that want to be in this space. You can bring additional capital beyond what you would individually offer. And that's what an SPV is when you put together a bunch of angels together and have them on your cap table as one unit, as opposed to just one individual, one individual, one individual. Um, I do have to add that you mentioned Kevin Kelly and Mm -hmm. I have always followed his advice when thinking about deals also in terms of philosophy, because he spent a lot of time. So he was the editor in chief of Wired, one of the best like tech magazines in the world. And he spent a lot of time actually in the Amish communities. Do you know this about him? (laughs) No, I didn't know that. (laughs) Oh, it's so interesting. The Amish are in America and they live in an old fashioned way. I use air quotes with that because they are so strong in their community values of how they want to live in day to day and what that looks like. So when they're exploring implementing new technology, like a smartphone, what they would do, and this is what Kevin Kelly went to like live with them and study and understand is they'd give one person a smartphone to see how it changed their behavior and then change the dynamics with the rest of the community. And they would, you know, then it'd be like, okay, what happens if we give two people it? Like, how does that actually look in terms of how it affects going back to placing nature or community or whatever your values are in the center? And from there, they'd make a decision on, is this something we want to incorporate in the community? Is it truly a tool that helps or hurts us? And that's how they evaluated it, which I just thought was so brilliant. And I've always remembered that ever since I heard it. Yeah, I was like, that's such a good idea. (laughs) I would love to use this as a proxy to bring up a a, a bit of a vulnerable topic of mine. I mean, I, I wish everyone would be a bit more open and transparent about themselves and insecurities. And one of my deepest insecurities is the fact that I have uh, eco-anxiety, you know, seeing the state of the world and clearly we're not trending in the right direction. We're years, decades behind where the schedule that we should be in. And so one one way is my sort of yang uh, from the yin and yang energy that fuel, that drive to always trying to reinvent things and to fuel my actions and to have maximum leverage and to, to you know, to put a, a lot of my energy out. But I tend to burn myself out, you know. And uh, one of the things I learned over the last couple of years, particularly last couple of months, is the idea of slowing down and the beauty of this in this crazy, noisy world that pushes you to the limit all the time is that slowing down is just actually a shortcut sometimes. And in your work-life equilibrium, avoiding that ongoing sprint to burnout cycles, there's actually 
slowing down doesn't mean reducing your goals or ambitions. It means enjoying more the journey and not the destination. And so mm. when I see communities like this, and then I'll, I'll use a personal example. I went to Iran uh, f- four, four or five years back, and it was one of the most transformative trips ever because Iran is painted in the Western culture as evil. Right, is the axis of evil. It's terrible, and they were trying to build nuclear weapons. But actually, the community is unbelievably, you know, the hospitality. They're just so friendly, and they're almost stuck in the '90s. Their technology is not very present, uh, and they take the time. They're so uh, there's no tourism there, so they're enjoying your presence so much. And it was a confirmation that slowing down, taking more time, building friendships, relationships, living, feeling alive in the here and now. It sounds very trite, but it's so true once you live it. Uh, it just fuels your happiness so much more. And so technology, absolutely a big driver of change. And unfortunately, it's such a driving force that will be unable to slow it down. But let's make sure that we fuel the right type of technology and not just overly rely on technology. And so the yeah. Hamish community, Kevin Kelly, I buy into this, getting inspired because it, it resets your own assumptions. Totally. Thank you for sharing that. And I think you bring up a good point too of why investing in climate tech and maybe even your draw into this is that it is empowering. You know, you you don't feel so hopeless that you have to resign yourself to the system that exists. You can actually make a difference. You talked about that throughout. I'm wondering before we close out, if there's anything else you'd like to mention or talk about that we didn't dive into and just give you the floor for that. Yeah, I, actually, well, there's one. I, the one of the, the the power figures in my life, I think we all have this, you know, very close to us, especially childhood figures, is probably my my grandmother who uh, who has gone through so much in her life. She's ninety six years old. She's unbelievable. She she has such a fuel. And she she said whenever I talk about those topics and the eco anxiety and the state of the world, she says, you know, Johan, you haven't considered one thing: <laughs> the power of women and the role that <laughs> women will play in the future. And, and I was like, I have to be honest, uh, and this is very timely because, you know, everyone is obsessed with Barbie and then uh, how Barbie, I actually love that movie. I think I, it almost made me feel like a, what a woman feels in this kind of society. So not to go too far on the tangent, but the power of women. And I really think that we should empower more women to get into climate tech. We should empower more women to do angel investing. We should empower more women to be in top leadership positions because that that's the level of vulnerability and this idea of just uh, consider all aspects of the world. And I talk about the yin and yang energy. The yang is very masculine energy that pushes you forward. This is what uh, pushes you to extract, you know, to burn, to to savage everything. And then the yin energy is the protective energy, is the balancing energy. We need so much more yin. Than we do of yang i think the the world is burning right now because we've over relied on yang and not enough on yin and so since women are equipped from birth that's almost the birthright to have this yin balance inside of them and they're calming the environment we almost should have you know i say we as a collective power to women and see if that experiment would be so much more conclusive because i think it would and i i i i can speak for the climate tech space where I see the boundaries to promoting women as, as fund managers, and I, that kills me. Um, there's a lot of maximum toxicity, you know, probably inherited from investment banking. 
consulting mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. or or even you know those circles of money because they're trying to hand basically they're investing in people that look like them think like them behave like them and and that needs to change really heavily so unfortunately because they're in control there's probably no incentive for them to change the the power structure so i almost believe more in the power in a in a bottom up movement and this is why pulling out of a fund for me was kind of a wave to to you know go back to to my uh, grassroots you know tribe people that like me that understand me and so we can empower more women to take control <laughs> Sorry and how do you long. think how do you think we actually do that though? I agree with you. How do you think we actually get more women and minorities investing and in, at the table? You know, this is also another preconceived notion that uh, women are not as good investors. I think it's a terrible. I don't know where that comes from. I think that you're much better investors because you can handle money much in much more responsibly. You're also much more <laughs> value you. aligned. <laughs> But it's true, and I think there's data on this. I think Sifted has published, uh, we can probably link studies to it. You would be just much better uh, asset and wealth managers or at least investors. So how do you do this? Unfortunately, you need to debunk preconceived notions. A lot of women are just not getting started because they don't think they would do a good job. You know, when men are just going for it and then they figure out after the fact, you know. So yeah. just do it, you know, jump into it. So we need more communities, we need more voices, we need more women to say, I've succeeded there, and here is how to lay out the path of success. Uh, and I will host, you know, webinars to help women get, make the leap. Uh, and this is also what I'm trying to do, uh, because uh, it doesn't take a ton of money to get started. And then once you get started, it's just the best way to create momentum. Yeah, and this is something I've covered a bit on my show, but this idea that we, I love the line in the Barbie movie, like when I learned the patriarchy wasn't about horses, I lost interest. It's kind of this vibe of like, okay, we're moving from a very masculine driven paradigm into a feminine one, that yin and the yang energy. And there's so uh-huh. much into it. And there's also been a lot written, like there's a great book called The Future of Food is Female that dives into, you know, everything is our relationship to mother earth. Even that is an idea of that's the container and the one that's holding us all. So I think it's a very strong point that there's many ways of thinking of this differently. And one is even just saying, how do we make sure everyone's involved? Because diversity, however that looks, makes us stronger. That's also been so proven. We know that homogenous systems fail. That is super proven. Financial portfolios that invest in only one thing are very vulnerable. So it makes sense that we diversify. And that is one of the secrets to the future. You know that this has been proven by evolution, meaning biology, and the fact that you have mm-hmm. a gene pool that is very diverse and c- perpetually just uh, create a stronger gene, which will uh, you know last and evolve longer. So biology has proven it. I don't. I don't think why monoculture or a monogene or monoculture, in the sense of a human organization culture, should win. I think diversity is just the best way to diversify our gene pool and then succeed throughout evolution. <laughs> You are so right. And it is proven on every level of nature that there's the same truth, which is that diversity is the answer. You look at your gut microbiome, your financial portfolio Mm -hmm. and organizational behavior, our genes. I mean, it's the same truth on every single level that we're stronger when we allow for everyone to have a role and everything to play a role. So, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I don't think I have any more questions for you today. It was such a joy to hear about your story. And again, everyone, please consider taking this course. If you've ever thought about angel investing, it's great. I can attest to it. I've been one of your students and I'm 
Where can they go to find more information? Where do they sign up if they want to get in? Can we just talk a minute about how it practically works? Yeah. So thanks so much, uh, Annalisa, for all those kind words. Uh, the best way to to learn more, I think, to become a, a subscriber of my newsletter every week on Saturday, I try to send out one actionable insight. The idea is to provide leverage for people to incorporate to become a climate tech investor or to be become a better founder or to accelerate your climate career. So that's kind of the best way. The, this podcast, I mean, I will have an incredible lineup, you know, starting soon, season three, get, stay tuned. And this course really I'm trying to bring the economics to work for everyone. So, you know, the price that it seems responsible, but uh, I also find that it's a bit of a, when you do a financial commitment, you stick to it. You know, uh, people have asked, why don't you do free classes? And, and I considered that, but it's like a free membership at the gym. If you have a free stuff, you just don't show up or because you can show up at any time, you just don't do it. If you uh, put enough capital to it, you will show up. And then this is how you can create transformation in your life. So join the class mm-hmm. if you think it could be valuable and then stay tuned. I will have a lot more announcements soon. Excellent. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. If you haven't already, sign up for my weekly newsletter. Along with receiving updates about each new episode, you will also get one actionable insight every Saturday to boost your career, fund a startup. My newsletter is value-packed authentic and full of unique insights. This newsletter is also the best way to join our growing community of climate investors. We found that building a community is probably the ultimate force multiplier and it gives us the momentum we need to create profound change. Let's share and collaborate. I'm just here to empower you to get started and set you on a path to success so our collective ideas can flourish and expand. Come join us to drive huge impacts.